I did think Kevin screamed in his crib out of free floating rage and not because he needed feeding. I fiercely believed that when he poked fun at our waitress's poopy face, he knew he would hurt her feelings and that he defaced the maps of my study walls out of calculated manners, not misguided creativity. I was still convinced that the systematically seduced Violetta into clawing a layer of skin from the better part of her body and that he continued to require diapers until he was six years old, not because he was traumatised or confused or slow to develop, but because he was, a, he was on full-time war footing with his mother. I thought he destroyed the toys and storybooks in a painstaking fashion because they were worth more to him as emblems of his own, up, own up yours in gratitude than as sentimental playthings. And I was sure that he learned to count and read in secret deliberately to deprive me of any sense of usefulness as a parent. My certainty that, my certainty that he was the one who flipped the quick release on the front wheel of Trent Corley's bicycle was unwavering. I was under no illusion that a nest of bowguns had dropped into Celia's backpack by itself, or that she had climbed 20 feet up her white oak only to get stranded on an upper ball branch all by her lonesome. I believed it was no more her idea to stir together a lunch of petroleum jelly and Thai curry paste than it was to play kidnapping and William Tell. I was pretty damn sure that whenever Kevin whispered in the ear of let us call her Alice at that eighth grade school dance, it was an admiration of her dress. And however liquid plumer got in Celia's left eye, I was dead positive that her brother had something to do with it beyond his role as her noble saviour. I regarded his jerking off at home with the door wide open as wanton sexual abuse of his mother and not the normal uncontrolled bubbling of adolescent hormones. Although I may have told Mary and Laura that she would suck it up, I found it entirely credible that our son had told her frail underfed daughter that she was fat. It was no mystery to me how a hit list turned up in Miguel Espinosa's locker. And though I took full responsibility for spreading one to my own company, I couldn't see the hobby of collecting computer viruses as anything but disturbed and degenerate. I remained firmly of the view that Vicky Pogorski had been persecuted in a show trial of Kevin, Kevin Kachadorian's personal contrivance. Granted, I've been mistaken about our son's responsibility for chucking ch chunks of bricks at oncoming cars on 9W, and until 10 days ago, I had chalked up the disappearance of a treasured photograph from Amsterdam as yet another victim of my son's unparalleled spite. So I have, as I said, always believed the worst, but even my unnatural maternal cynicism had its limits. When Rose told me there had been a vicious assault at Kevin's high school and some students were feared dead, I worried for his well-being. Not for an instant did I manage that our son was the perpetrator. Hello guys, <laughs> welcome back to The House Podcast, our innovative exploration of the humanities beyond the curriculum. I'm Susanna, one of your Demeter house captains. And I'm Jess, one of the Hestia house captains. And we're here this time with a special guest. <laughs> Oh, I'm Mrs. Ronan. I'm the head of English. Woo! Uh, today we're going to be discussing. We need to talk about Kevin as promised. Yes. And that was one of the pages that we found most encapsulated the whole topic. Yes, it's quite interesting because you see the steady build as she describes all these horrific things that Kevin's done, and eventually, whether there's there's this moment, there's this reprieve where she suggests that oh, he he couldn't have done this. He she worries for his own well-being, and then. We steadily, steadily start to understand that Kevin has committed an atrocity. And so for those of you that haven't read We Need to Talk About Kevin, it's about a teenage boy who essentially shoots seven students at his high school, as well as a canteen worker, a canteen and, a worker and a teacher. So a total of nine casualties. It is written by Lionel Shriver. And interestingly, interestingly enough, she is a woman, but from the age of around nine, she's used... Um, male aliases so I, I think she had a podcast with BBC I'm not sure but I think it was Tony at first and then she changed it to Lionel but essentially I think there's 
this disconnect from appearing feminine, especially when she's writing this book. And this book is an exploration of motherhood and whether or not she wants to be a mother and sort of exploring the nightmare, the worst case scenario that could come from it. And as you could probably guess, <laughs> she does not become a mother. No, she does not. So Lionel Shriver, interestingly, although she the motherhood is the central theme of Winnie's talk about Kevin, she never actually had children herself. And so she wrote this book during her 40s. It originally came out in 2003. And so around this time, there were the kind of shockwaves of absolute high school atrocities, if you think of Columbine. And that's very much what um, the atrocity, like Kevin, her, um, the protagonist, Eva's son, commits, is very much similar to that. And so one of the key questions that arises out of Winnie's talk about Kevin is, was this, was, is the nature versus nurture question, was Kevin born innately evil and is this simply an expression and this unavoidable consequence of who he is? Or was it, is Kevin's action a byproduct of the society that he's been raised by and his own mother? I think it's important also to mention that this book is written from the perspective of Eva, who is the main character, who's the mother of Kevin. And you you don't know if she's a reliable narrator. I'd say she's the pinnacle of an unreliable narrator. It's all written to letter by letters to Franklin, who you at the end find out that it is it's dead. dead. <laughs> and he's been murdered by Kevin along with uh, Kevin's little sister Celia. Yeah, and it's such a sad scene, but. I think it's in Eva's best interest to appear as this holy saviour figure as opposed to a cruel mother, which I personally think she is. Uh, she never really wanted to get pregnant in the first place. There was a big... No, she saw it, she described motherhood as something like um, travelling to another country and that's very much reflected in the way she interacts with it, like, where she has moments where she engages with Kevin. For example, there's one moment when Kevin's ill and you actually see this connection between them for the first time and this kind of what a mother-son relationship almost should be but then she very much withdraws from that again and she kind of holidays in and out of her parental responsibilities in a way and being a mother isn't another country it is something that you commit to your whole life yeah. however Eva thinks that she can withdraw her responsibility at certain times for example when with the school shooting there's this big question of whether all of her actions towards Kevin have contributed to this or if he's randomly all of a sudden decided to do this uh, throughout her bringing up Kevin she's very mechanical about it I think she believes that if she's changed his diapers if she's given him food that equals to being a good mother as opposed to actually giving him compassion and she very much treat, treats it as a war as well between two sides it's always her versus Kevin and Franklin who is the father uh, her as an Armenian as well against the whole of America. That's one of the things that's quite interesting in a way is when I read it, I was wondering if there's maybe perhaps a parallel between Eva's detachment from Kevin and from motherhood because she views it as a foreign country and she very much makes a mockery of the American way of living. She makes fun of their patriotism. She mocks um, their diet and she very much distinguishes herself from that and perhaps in some way um, when when... Eva and um, Franklin eventually move out to suburbia, maybe that's her rejection of the American middle-class life of suburbia and her detachment from heaven is her escapism from that because she seems to think that she can still venture in and out of his life. 
as though she were visiting another country. And she continues that foreign visitor in his life. Okay, I think you're both being really harsh on, um, <laughs> on Eva, okay? So Eva, right, is Kevin's mum, okay? And then she also has a, a daughter after Kevin, doesn't she? You're, you, you're both suggesting <laughs> that she has absolutely no, she doesn't want, uh, she never wanted Kevin, okay? And I know that there is that disconnect, right? But she has this child and she has to learn how to be a mum, Okay, and do you not do you not feel any sympathy for her at all that she finds that actually a really difficult job? Oh, um, absolutely. I feel like there's it's quite painful to see the disconnect between them because that has a mental toll on her as well. But she wants to care for him, and when yeah. he's poorly, and they have that kind of moment of closeness, because she does she say that she feels that he kind of gives up because he's so poorly he doesn't fight her, right? He doesn't. That's how she words yeah. it, right? That he doesn't have the energy, right? But she I just would like you to feel a bit more sympathetic for her, that she tries and who is there to teach her what to do? And she is kind of positioned against Franklin, who is Kevin's dad, who Kevin has a really good relationship with. And that jealousy surely must affect her, kind of must explain her actions. Is, are you saying that she's inherently, like Shriver has created this inherently evil woman? I don't think she's inherently evil. No. I don't think Kevin is either. No, they're all, they're all, they're all so, they're all very between the extremes. But I think what's interesting with Eva is I think part of the reason why she rejects Kevin so much is because he's such a parallel to her and I think that frightens her. I think in the earlier on, Shriver describes how um, imagine bearing a child and then realising with this helpless, irrevocable little person squalling in its crib, that you've made a mistake. Who really, in that instance, would who who really in that little in that instance would pay the price? And it's interesting there because she also talks about how she was like feared being saddled with herself in terms of having a child. And I feel like Shriver, in some ways, kind of makes a caricature of the mother-son relationship in order to explore that. But she definitely shows there's problems of both Eva and Kevin. Neither okay. of them are perfect in the relationship. Okay, so Eva, the way that I feel Eva's character develops is through fear, as you were just saying, Jess, okay? So fear of um, not being able to control this child that she's had or, or not being able to gain control of her life, right? Kevin, though, is, I don't believe, was born evil. Are we all on the same page? No, I don't think I'm, I'm on the evil. same page, yeah. Yeah, yeah he wasn't so. one evil. So we're under the nurture. We're on the nurture side, the are nurture we? Side. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, and then, then because of all of those issues that Eva has, they kind of manifest through Kevin, and then that, that's what creates Kevin's character. Right? She does describe him as sort of this evil character from the start, though. Isn't she? She vilifies him as a baby, and maybe that's why and it thinking, progresses and it worsens. That's the thing yeah. that's quite scary about it, because she's getting angry and essentially turning like a little little boy into like the villain of her life. And maybe, to, to be fair, in some ways, she feels that way because I think Eva was so hesitant with motherhood that she's very swift to blame it um, when things go wrong onto Kevin's presence. It's this self fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? That. Well, she has low expectations, or she expects to even have of her herself go. Yes, she expects to be defeated. That it becomes a defeat. 
in itself, yeah, that she doesn't allow herself to revel in the joy and to revel in the lows as well. I think about her being that unreliable narrator as well. There are so many mm. things that you think, did this actually really happen? Or has she exaggerated it? Because she's writing those letters, letters to Franklin, in who she knows yeah. it will, won't receive them. Exactly. Right? And who she knows can't argue with her when he... Because Franklin was much more um, sympathetic towards Kevin. He was a kind of all-American dad. Really, <laughs> come on, son, let's go do this today. And Eva completely juxtaposes that. And Kevin hated that as well. No, yeah, he didn't engage with it. He was very plastic in his relationship with his father. It was synthetic. But I don't think Franklin always registered that. I think Franklin took it as genuine, which is quite sad in a way because it meant that Kevin was completely isolated from both of his parents at times. And then Celia comes along and Eva sort of has her as an experiment to see if Celia's going to turn out the same way that Kevin yeah. does. And... She doesn't. She's much more sympathetic. She's a much more softer she be yeah, character, she I guess. a foil almost to Kevin in a way because it's kind of this like angelic child in juxtaposition to Kevin who to her is like this personal demon that keeps following her around. And Celia gets all the attention. Yes, she does. From her mum anyway. But Franklin is very much focused on Kevin still. Mm. But Franklin, almost he's almost hesitant to love Celia because he feels like that's a... Like a treason to Kevin in a way and in some ways you can't blame them because you know that Eva can't reciprocate the same level of love that he can for Kevin. It's quite it's quite sad in a way but I feel like for me, at least for me I think the reason why I'm much more sympathetic towards Kevin after having got to the end of it I think when I was first reading it I was talking to Zuja who had already <laughs> read it and I was like I don't like Kevin I don't know why he's doing this he's being so cruel. I was so cool. Kevin from the start. I was really I was very anti-Kevin but by the end of it, there's this moment when you see this little connection between um, Eva and um, Kevin, when essentially they kind of, it's just before he's about to be transferred to the adult facility, and you see this fear in him, and you see this humanity that he's never had before. And in that moment, I feel like that's the only real authentic look at Kevin that we ever truly get through Eva's eyes, because in that moment, she allows him to be vulnerable, whereas before she's vilified him up to this point. And for me, that was a turning point when I started to think, she's that humanity there can't have been just gone all this time before yeah. and that's not really that for me that changed the way i saw kevin as well how he it. keeps her picture and exactly. keeps celia's eye as well and oh we should probably explain the eye right okay <laughs> so celia um she was two-eyed yeah she was two-eyed <laughs> <laughs> she was one-eyed um, uh, essentially um Eva leaves Kevin, her and I think a babysitter together. I'm not sure if the babysitter is. There I think or not. he he told the babysitter to leave. I think early because he said I think he said yeah he told the babysitter to leave early and then it was just him. Yeah. So, um, Celia. Celia and Kevin are alone and yeah. there is this bottle of what is it drain cleaner? It's like it's called oh I've got the name of it. It's probably just bleach, is it? I think that's what it, that's what it must be. But I've it's something she puts in the drain, especially in the movie. Yeah, it's called it's liquid pluma. Right, liquid pluma. So there's that. There's that in the bathroom, and Eva swears that she didn't leave it, it out, and she cabinet. put it back in the cupboard, which has like child safety locks on it. And then all of a sudden, it's in Celia's eye, and they're going to hospital to the hospital 
And it's Franklin with Celia that they're taking her to the hospital. And I think Eva is at work, I'm yeah. not sure. But she doesn't get the full story. And the whole thing is that, did Kevin actually call the ambulance to save Celia or did he pour it in her eye? Which sounds a bit grim, but... And then call the ambulance after as well, which yeah. is even more... And then Sinistic. he supposedly calls Franklin afterwards. But the way that she describes Kevin throughout the whole book basically sort of sets him up to be guilty of the crime. And she, throughout the whole book, she said that he's done this to Celia. And honestly, I'm not sure if he does. Like, did, does Celia pour it in her own eye? I'm not sure. No. You don't know, though. I don't know, but I've got a pretty good idea that it was Kevin. Okay. It must be, mustn't it? Why would Celia pour it into her own eye? I do think, it, honestly, I do think it is Kevin, but the thing, but that doesn't stop me from feeling sympathy <laughs> for Kevin, in a way. I do think Kevin poured it into her eye. But I don't think, that doesn't stop me from feeling sympathy for him, in a way, because it was almost through those actions of, like, Kevin's interesting in the way that he's, he shows what he values in his destruction of it, if that makes any sense. He finds that he finds the beauty of things in its destruction. And for me, one of the things that I sort of read when I, when he committed this mass shooting was because each of these people, like students um, that he selected was like a favorite in some way. They were over, like they had this zeal for life or this zeal for a certain um, subject. And Kevin's destruction of that was almost jealousy in a way. And so perhaps for Kevin, this is like an extreme act of hatred, not so much against Celia, but I guess hatred against being isolated and being forgotten and alienated. And you have to wonder, well, why, what would drive him to do that against Celia when she's so innocent? And you have to understand that for his whole life, or particularly for that period of his life with Celia introduced, that he's been completely sidelined and marginalised. And that's not just, because, and that's worsened with Celia's presence there as well. Alienated from his mother especially. I just think everything Kevin does, it like you realise at the end of the novel that everything Kevin has done is for his mother's attention and that breaks my heart, right? Yeah. Because you, I went cold when I read the end of the novel when you realise that every single thing he's done, all the brutal, awful, awful things that he did kind of as he, as he got older were because he wanted the love of his mum. That's how I... That's how I see it. And that hurt, that worries me because I have a son. And, that, <laughs> and what happens, what happens if in motherhood you get it wrong? That, like, this is a real life concern for me. What happens if you get it wrong? Does this happen? Uh, but then I have to kind of think about the fact that you, you're right, okay? Shriver doesn't have children, so she's not writing from uh, a lived experience. Mm. She's writing an imagined experience, so... What it does is it just, it compels you to kind of consider what could go wrong and the fact that a lack of love can create a child like this because he wasn't born evil, he wasn't born like this. Everything he did, I think he did for his mother's, um, to try to be perfect in his mother's eyes or to try to get her attention or to try and do what he thought she wanted him to do. And as he gets older, I think that's why he attacks Celia. Think about, what about the symbolism of blinding? I know he doesn't completely blind her, but half blinding her, taking her sight away. Is there something, why would he do that? 
I suppose because he doesn't like sharing the world with her. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's quite interesting. Really, because he doesn't want to share his mum's attention. He wants that, I guess, undivided attention, and Celia really blocks him from achieving that. But also, in terms of blindness, if you think about, I suppose, darkness in a way. That's what I always think about when I think about blindness and the fact that Celia's life is. She's. I think what's interesting is that by making Celia half like half blinded in a way. He completely isolates her and marginalises her in a way socially that he's experienced domestically. And so I think that's interesting because then Celia, he tells her, oh, you'll just have to suck it up when the kids make fun of you. And in some ways, that's his experience of his home life, the way that he gets almost made a mockery of as a so child. Oh. <laughs> as a child by his mother, who um, particularly there's one really poignant scene which you feel very passionate, passionately about with um, the maps where, she's at, where she yeah. makes a mockery of his personality. Yes, basically. So Eva has decided that she, oh, they moved into a new house in the suburbs and she's making her own room. She's making it special. She's making it to her own personality and she loves traveling. So she gets a lot of old maps and she sticks it on her wall. And it, it looks quite nice in the movie. I recommend watching it. <laughs> <laughs> it's on Netflix. And up until that point, Kevin has this squirt gun, they call it, and he loves annoying Eva with it and annoying everyone with it, just anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Squirting people around with water. And there's this pivotal conversation that they have where Kevin comes into her room and says something along, along the lines of, this is dumb. And then Eva says, it isn't dumb because I like it and this is meant to be my room and it's meant to reflect my personality. And in that she's trying to teach him what a personality even is. She hasn't emotionally developed him at all in the fact that she's so, she lacks affection for him. And he says, what personality? And there's this moment where you, you come away from that book, you just give it a pause and you think, what has she actually given him to base his life off of? And his room even is described as really plain and really clean looking. And what he does the next day is gets the squirt gun, loads it up with red and black ink and ruins the whole walls. But I, I personally think that he's trying to give something back to Eva and give his own personality to the room. Yeah. Which is such a strange way of looking at it. But it is what Miss Ronan said about getting her attention. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I mean, I, that's my personal opinion about the book, about that scene. And as well, there's this one particular particular moment where there's this girl, I don't know if she's called Violetta or Violet, I'm not sure, but she has eczema. And there's this moment where I think a teacher- It's in a bathroom at- Yeah, at, like, and he yeah. scratches her arms till they bleed. And it, the, the point is that that is described up until then as sort of a relieving thing that you have that she has to restrain from doing and honestly he might just be trying to help her she's trying to get her to feel pleasure by her not having to scratch her arms herself and there's so many of these moments where the things that kevin does you can interpret them in 
two completely different ways as genuine inherent evil, which I don't think exists and is something that I quoted a lot in my um, Lord of the Flies mob <laughs> to get full marks. <laughs> but I don't believe it's true. I think the whole our inherent illness of mankind is just an excuse for and for not being accountable for your actions, mm -hmm. particularly if Eva does identify this thing within Kevin. It's her not being accountable for her, how she's nurtured him and instead blaming it on this metaphysical thing he's been born into, this human nature that you can't blame him for. But yeah, that's my take. <laughs> no, I don't believe people are inherently evil as well. I think some people do bad things um, and then and then sometimes they do good things. That's humans, isn't it? Some humans, so one day you might behave badly and the next day you might not. That doesn't mean you're a fake person or that you're... That's just what that's just humanity. So um, Kevin is behaving the way he's behaving because he's desperately trying to seek something from his mum, which is why he squirts the gun all over Literally. her. Literally, because he, <laughs> because he hears her say, "This is my personality," and he how frustrated must he feel that that he's that his room is, is really neat and tidy and where is his personality? Like, it's just a battle between the two. But I also think Eva's, Eva, I think she loves him and I think she's always loved him and I think, and I think that she, um, she just gets it wrong. But like, really awfully gets it wrong. She does. She loves him though. Do you, do you agree that she cares for him? I think she does care, but one thing I think that's quite interesting, at least in the book, is that we, we attribute so much blame, so much question of either role motherhood, but what about Franklin, her fatherhood? Yeah. Why are we straight to blame? Because there's a moment when um, she goes to visit Kevin in the like, juvenile um, detention facility, and she sits down next to another mother, and they're discussing how you can't always blame the mother, and how... And it's always how the, the mum drank, and not oh, the, the dad. Oh, the mum drank, yeah, the mum did drugs, or something like that. But what about the father, as well? And it's hard, because... Eva definitely attempts to show love, and she we do see love because she shows unconditional love for Celia. But what about Franklin as well? Because we can't. It's you. And when they have a child, they're not just choosing to have a child; they're choosing to become parents, and that is a sense of responsibility that both of them have to bear in order to procreate. I just think that Shriver just never gives us Franklin's that viewpoint does she no that's so true though yeah because you never consider how yeah. much of a 2d character franklin is and that's more of a criticism of the book and not mm -hmm. the actual not him himself no, yeah not franklin himself. but the way he's written to just oh, i don't know hey, we never see kevin's point of view do we no no only through the segments of what's happening in the present where they're going to the juvie detention center do you think that if somebody wrote this and rewrote this novel from the point of view of Kevin, it would just be utterly heartbreaking that oh, he no. throughout, throughout <laughs> the whole yeah throughout the whole book he would just be like why is mum you know doing this or why won't she be like this or why do you not think it would just be a whole series of frustration for him, which then manifests in him killing everybody? It would just it would just be really heartbreaking. I don't it yeah the the idea that Kevin just his character escalates to the point where he does what he does is just awful knowing that she do you think his mum at some point could have changed that story for him if she just i think I it's interesting though because we put the onus on um 
either to provide love, but we also need to put some responsibility on Kevin to be accepting of love. Yeah, but as a baby... I think, particularly in his teenage years, when Eva tries to reach out, there's this moment when she tries to, she sets up like a little date with him, and she says, oh, we're going to go, we're going to go do this, golf. and then she tries to, yeah, she does mini golf with him, and then she tries to have these moments of connection, and it's interesting, because Kevin's very much a cord, but then, to some degree, he has accountability for that, because he should have to, like, the emotional maturity by that age to reach out to her, but I, then I suppose, equally, one of the things that stands out to me about Kevin is that he still seems to have this emotional regression almost, where he's got this mind of a child when, and when he commits this atrocity, like Mrs. said, it's um he's so mentally like unstable and then depraved as a child that he kind of when he he let me rephrase that. What's interesting with Kevin is that the way he orchestrates his um massacre is he does it in the style of Robin Hood using a bow and arrow well not bow and arrow, he uses a crossbow as opposed to the usual kind of gun. Gun, yes, put, put simply. And so that's interesting because obviously Robin Hood is like a classic childhood story. And so, at least for me, that very much affected how Kevin is stuck in this state of this mental, mentally depraved child where he's been deprived of love and affection. And although Eva certainly tries to provide that, and Franklin certainly is more than compensating of that, we also have to put some responsibility in Kevin once he's emotionally mature enough to be accepting of that, when she makes these opportunities for them to connect, because he does reject it. And arguably, maybe it's like, you know, like with, an, like with a dog that's been hit too many times and it would just bite. At the same time, I feel like Kevin, he sees these opportunities with his mother where she's trying to reach out and often he rejects them or... I feel, I'd, you're right, I completely forgot about the bit about uh, the stuff about Robin Hood. She, um, and this bit right so at the sad. end, right, this bit at the end. Oh. I feel like when he, when he gets out and she says she's going to wait for him, it's just going to be a perpetual cycle, I don't think, right? Yeah. Because she says, um, she says she loves him at the end. She says, out of desperation, uh, she loves him. But then she says... Um, there is a second bedroom in my serviceable apartment. The bedspread is plain and a copy of Robin Hood lies on the bookshelf and the sheets are clean. That's... I think it's uncalled for, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, because, from Shriver? No, from, from Eva. Yeah. Because of how this has all gone down and all of a sudden it's this tabula rasa, that this blank slate that he can just come back and she's this great mother for offering him. Yeah, but the him. reference to Robin Hood isn't, is, is creepy. That that's sinister. I think that's a sinister end. Don't you think? I didn't even think that. she that. understands. Well, you killed oh, everyone. that's, yeah. That you, <laughs> that you killed everyone with a crossbow. Well done, Kevin. Here's a copy of your inspiration on your book when you come oh out of prison. That is quite brightly actually. It's, <laughs> it's, it's sinister, isn't it? Isn't it? Because I read it as her trying to connect to him and her trying to like read, <laughs> her trying to read his motherhood or to try and find that one thing that she connected with him because that was the one thing he was interested in. That was the one gift to her, gift, sorry, sorry, that was the one gift to him when he was a child that he actually actively interested in how she, I think she described how he would oh, read it okay. in secret. Okay, so maybe it's maybe it's wound up in then that the, the, something that she gave him as a child that they mm. connected through was the one thing that he used to commit the most brutal crime he could. Maybe that's to hurt. It's her. yeah, in it, a way. It, but then, but then you can't ignore the the connection to yeah, the murders and the fact that she's put a copy of it by his bed <laughs> when he gets out of prison. I'm not saying she wants him to commit more murders, but it's. It's, it doesn't sit right, does it? Yeah, there's like a kind it's, of psychological inconsistency. Yeah. 
it's her not acknowledging that her actions have contributed right, to this. Right, that's exactly. That's that's the thing, and that that feeds into your conclusion that she's completely detached from her own accountability for Kevin's yeah. evil, where she doesn't seem to think that her giving him Robin Hood is in any way problematic. <laughs> oh. Think of a point now. Should we do the? Is there more you guys want to say, or do you want to do? We're at thirty-two minutes. Because we could do the final. We we do this thing where we do like a one word or like a one phrase, sort of like the English department. Yeah, like the Jack and Hyde ones, where we sort of summarise. I I think there will still be more to say though, because yeah, because I mean we could talk about the nuclear family. That's one thing I wrote down about. I have. I think I have a point about like Kevin sort of submitting to the evil persona that she's about that. Okay. Well, there's another point that I wanted to mention <laughs> about how, so Kevin, so I, I feel like from his earliest moments of childhood, it isn't this, there's no evil intent behind what he's doing. And as he grows up, it is sort of the most destructive thing that he can mm-hmm. do. And the thing that most applies to what Eva is talking about. And what what Eva sort of describes him as, I think this is a very obscure reference, but in the Republic by Plato. <laughs> so they talk about what it is to be a just person, and that Theoclimenes, I think, is the person that talks about this, and he says that it's better to be an unjust person, but appear just. So people think that you're this great noble person, but actually in the background, you're gambling, stealing, whatever, as opposed to actually truly being just in it, within yourself and people thinking that you're evil. And I think that also this gets disproved long, long later <laughs> in the Republic. But I think that if if you name someone as evil for so much of their life, isn't it just more beneficial to be evil? Isn't it more beneficial to do whatever you want if your reputation is going to be the same either way? Absolutely, yeah. I think if I then, I think there's, that's, that also ties in because in the, in We Need to Talk About Kevin, they mentioned No Exit a few times. And one of the quotes from Eva is she talks about how like hell is living with your family rather than like, or let me find the actual quote. It's I think as well, if, if the whole of Townley Grammar School thinks you're a thief, yeah, this is it. Then you might as well. How is other people you're related to? Mm. And I think it's interesting because when Sarge talks about no exit, it's not so much that how is our like human interaction, but how is the fact that we judge each other, and that's part of the reason why, in some way, her relationship with Kevin is so strained because the ca- the capacity for evil she sees in him is the capacity for evil within herself, and she's so fearful of her own detachment from motherhood, I suppose, being paralleled in his detachment from humanity. And it does end up happening by that, because the more she pulls away, the more he becomes more emotionally depraved and kind of malnourished in terms of love. Isn't that, isn't that why she writes the letters to Franklin as well? Because it's, it's this fear of being judged and the fact that when something is so close to you, I think George Orwell has this quote about something being on your nose and it's, it's, a struggle to see it but that she writes these letters to Franklin who isn't alive sort of asking for redemption from whatever she has done 
and it's the fact that he isn't there to respond to her yeah. and she's doing this specifically because she wants to be freed from the accountability of Kevin's actions but equally she's too afraid to actually be told that what she has done has contributed to how the whole book ends. Interesting. I agree. I don't think that um, if you, uh, I, I don't know if I agree with your point that if you, if everybody thinks that you're a particular inclined to do a particular things that you might as well just continue to do them. I think that you need somebody to show you that, that you don't have to continue in that way, that Kevin doesn't have anyone to kind of as a role model for him. But I was just thinking, does he have Franklin though? like to give to show him that he doesn't have to behave in this way. I understand that Eva is probably, you know, not a great role model for him in that because she's caught up in her own issues, isn't she, and her own fears. But where it, you do need someone to break the cycle of who everyone else thinks you are, or you do need somebody, and this is what all children need, to have your back and support you and defend you. And did Kevin ever have that? Franklin does defend Kevin yeah, but though. Yeah, this is what I th this is which what I think is so... Franklin is there, but he's not present. But he's in not there. The book, which is yeah. a flaw yeah, of the is. book. It is because, because every time, wrong. yeah, every time, for example, Eva, I don't know, Eva says that oh, this is Kevin's fault, or Eva even mentions that Celia losing her eye might be Kevin's fault. The divorce happens. Because Franklin just Franklin is so on Kevin's side, and I guess we do talk about how there is a wall between Franklin and Kevin and Eva as this alienated figure. But Franklin very much defends Kevin. It and just it can't be enough for Kevin, can it? Like his bond with his mum must be much more important to him than his bond with his dad. Because if if Franklin is defending Kevin, then what's going wrong? If, it, if, it, if there's a child or anyone, if you think that you're, like, I always think this about my own child. If I haven't got his back, who does? Who, if your parents don't support you in whatever it is you do or, or are there for you, who, who's going to be? Who is there? So if Eva's not, if Eva is blaming Kevin and doing all of this, then his dad should be. But maybe his dad, maybe it just wasn't enough for him. Or maybe this is Lionel Shriver's comment on men. I don't know. <laughs> Love a bit of misandry. Yeah. <laughs> I think Lionel Shriver as well talks about, she's very, oh, she's quite callous in the way she talks about her book. She very much defends it in the sense that I didn't write as a mother and uh, even though I portray this experience of motherhood as really bad, um, don't read it then, lollers. <laughs> so <laughs> so she says she was, she didn't write as, it as a mother. Basically, there's this there's this student that asks her a question. It's sort of like a Q&A session. And she says, don't you feel a little bit accountable <clears throat> for young people reading this book and thinking, I don't want to be a mother now. Mm. And she says, don't read it then. And should we hold Shriver accountable for creating this nightmarish depiction of motherhood? I think possibly we should. Um, no, <laughs> no, what should we? Uh, well, she has, okay, so she is accountable in the fact that she's written this 
this texture and it is a really really brutal depiction of motherhood you're right but at the end of the day it's I think it's a book about love controversial don't you think it's a book about love and or um okay not the presence of love but what happens when you feel the absence of love like what is the worst what is the worst that can happen to humanity when there's no love i think that's an interesting happen. point because it's not it's interesting because normally we think of like the opposite of love as being hate but really in this case it's indifference and just the lack of interest in kevin and it's quite sobering in that way because it shows how motherhood is more than what Eva could like conceived of it of as just like a news a turning the page in her life really motherhood is it almost it should become almost the novel in a way yeah it's a commitment it's a commitment can end it here I mean we can do the little I like that man? talking about it's a book about love I think that's a nice ending well, I think she does love him but oh you know, we can cut this if you like but I think she does love him but she doesn't doesn't quite she's maybe never given the opportunity to know how to show it to him or he's never I just think it's a, they just, something just doesn't happen between them and you can't turn back time at the end of the day, can you? You can't go back and try and fix that point where he, like, um, when he's, when he kind of defaces her study, like, you can't, you deal with it a certain way, you can't go back and fix it, you can't unsay words that you've said to him, you can't, I don't know, it's just, um, I think, and I know they're not real characters, but maybe Shriver is saying it. I don't know what she's saying. What she's I, saying. I wanted to add to that because I think you made a nice point about the way <laughs> that they the constant like mixed signals between them. And I think one of the things about the way they love each other is they love secretly and they're they're afraid to openly show it, I suppose, for fear of not of not being reciprocated. That's perfect. I think that's that's what a reason yeah. is, like the secret love and I think that's their downfall, the fact that they're not willing to be vulnerable with each other. That's really sad. You want to do the like little phrase? What phrase? Yeah. Okay. Okay, and now as we come towards the end of the podcast, we're all going to give our one word, one phrase summary of how we responded. So we need to talk about Kevin. So Zuzia, would you like to begin? <laughs> I'm not okay. I'm laughing. <laughs> You can say anything. I, I thought you were laughing because it was yeah. so like now. Let's. I mean, I did stoner and I said hopeful once about stoner. So I mean, you can't. The bar is low. Okay, I'm gonna. Mm. Let me think. I don't know. <laughs> Should I start? Yeah, go for it. Um, for me, I would say we need to talk about Kevin. Is I would say motherhood. Hmm. I'd say accountability. I'm going to say love. Oh. <laughs> Hang on. If anyone looked, if anyone said, okay, we need to talk about Kevin, accountability, motherhood, and love, would you come up with a story about who no. <laughs> kills lots of people in his school with a crossbow and, you know, no. kills his dad and his sister? No. Absolutely not. Yeah, but like, that's what we thought, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We can, we can finish it now. Okay.